Okay, yes, part two. So I'm going to get straight into it because for those of you that were here last week, by the end it was a little rushed. <laughs> Actually, it was a lot rushed. So what I would like to start off with today is a little bit of a quick recap of what I covered off last week. For those that haven't seen last week, it's like sort of jumping into a, into a movie series or something without having seen one of the earlier movies. It's like, I'm not too sure what's going on here. So we'll, uh, quick, quick recap. He says, hopefully, quick. Our belief is formed by a combination of four factors. Scripture, tradition and teaching, reason and logic, and experience. So what we understand the Bible is saying, how we've been brought up, the teaching we've been exposed to, um, and that, you know, 65 years ago, that was the church that did that explaining. Now it's our education system and social media that do it. Um, we have to recognise that, sh- that shift. Um, reason, the application of logic and evidence, um, and our experience, um, what we've experienced and how we've interpreted those experiences. If we want to understand the Bible, we need to be able to trust what we read. We need to be able to develop an understanding of the following elements. Culture, and I'm going to spend a bit of time looking at that today. Historical context and the languages of the Bible and the impact that translation has had on what we read. Uh, We're not reading it in the language it was written and certainly not reading it in the language it was said. Um, There are lots of idioms. An idiom is a uh, word or phrase that means something other than what it means at at face value. Uh, We use lots of idioms. Now, probably the most common idiom that we'd be familiar with is saying that someone has passed away. No, they're dead. (laughs) But we say passed away because it sounds much gentler. Um, And and I'm sure you can think of a million others. where We we say things, and if you treat them literally, then you're going to go, that's weird. Um, For those of you that are old enough to remember the TV series Get Smart, there was a character in Get Smart called Jaime. He was a robot. And a lot of the humour that they had in the scenes where he was involved was where they were using idioms or figures of speech and he would take it literally, like, lend me a hand. So he'd unscrew his hand and pass it over. Um, So we use that. The Bible is full of idioms. But we don't get that because... We're not the culture that it was written in or the culture it was written for. Um, Give you an example. In Jewish culture, know that I think, Phil, you've got a t shirt that says, I heart anatomical accuracy. Somewhere, somewhere, yeah, I I remember that. And so we see the heart. Now, if somebody draws a heart, or they do, no, what is it? Yeah, that, something like that. Anyway, what do we take that to mean? Love, affection. Well, I'm sorry, that's a culturally framed opinion. For the Jews of Bible times, and this is no reference to the family that is part of our church, 
It wasn't the heart that was the seat of affection and emotions. It was the kidneys. <laughs> Which makes it really, really interesting when you look at the... For those of you that are doing soap and reading Leviticus and sitting there going, why has Pastor Andrew made us read this? The fact that for the burnt offerings, they actually burnt, specifically burnt the kidneys. They sacrificed the seat of the emotions. Interesting. Um, Job, in Soap Today, talked about his kidneys being pierced. So it's all about emotions. But we don't read, we read kidneys and go, oh yeah, processing bodily fluid. Excellent. You study, you study biology in high school, you never want to eat kidneys again. It's like, nope, nope. Um, took ages to try and get that through to my mum. So, um, the bowels. No, we, we, we look at the bowels and go, yeah, we know what they're for. We thought the kidneys were bad, but the bowels are even worse. The bowels were the seat of compassion. So you sit there, no, and we still have that as an expression, the bowels of compassion. It's like, that's just weird. Um, so idioms are there. We, 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 and we just need to be aware of those. Well, I'll have a look at that in a little bit more. We need to recognise that we have grown up a lot of time being encouraged to read the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible says, read the Bible. I'm happy for people to correct me, but it doesn't say read, it says study, it says understand. And we need to get that shift working and set aside time. Now, I get up at a ridiculous hour of the morning, 5.30 for those of you that are wondering, so that I can spend a good half an hour, 45 minutes doing my Bible reading in the morning because I don't want to rush it because it's too important to rush because I want to be able to not only just read through the chapter that I'm looking at but I want to also look at other bits that relate to that. I want to look at how it fits in with the overall theme that's developing. And it's amazing how often it all ties together. So we need, to, we need to be very aware of that. I looked at what the Bible is and discussed how there are lots of versions of it based on which books are accepted and the different traditions. Now, I looked at this verse. This was our key verse last week, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And for those of you that are wondering about the MIT, it's actually a translation that you can only get with the Bible um, analysis software that I've got, which isn't available anymore, so sorry about that. But it actually stands for the guy that did it. His surname was McDonald's, so it's got nothing to do with the fast food chain. It's McDonald's idiomatic translation, and it's only the New Testament. So he goes out of his way to make sure that the idioms are transferred into something that's a little bit more... 21st century Western related, or late 20th century. So, now where it says, God's breath permeates all scripture, making it valuable for doctrine, for censure, for correction, and for discipline in righteousness. Its purpose is that the man of God might be fully qualified, 
equipped for every good work. Uh, there's a very clear purpose of what Scripture is for. Do you notice what's not in there? Nothing in there that says to make us feel good. Sorry. Bible wasn't designed so that we would have a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling after we've read it and go, oh, good. I feel wonderful now. We should read the Bible and be challenged. The prayer part of my soap of a morning is raw. Sometimes it's just a thanks. <laughs> or thank you that we don't have to go through this anymore because of what Jesus did on the cross. Sometimes it's a, I've got some serious work to do in this area. They're never long. <laughs> the prayer part is not long. You look at the great prayers of the Bible, you know, particularly the, in the New Testament, they are really, really short. Lord, save me! As Peter is sinking into the waves. No, we don't need long, wordy prayers for God to listen to us. <sighs> Very briefly, I looked at the history of the translations of the Bible, I touched on a few key areas um, and hope that I left you all with a clear recognition we can't just read the Bible and try and understand it through our 21st century Western mindset. I'd like to now cover some of the things I had to rush. Didn't get to talk about Marcion and Tertullian. I had the picture up and I actually had Marcion on that one, but anyway. Um, Luke 1, 1 to 4. Have I skipped over that one, have I? Nope. Sorry? Okay. Luke, Luke 1, 1 to 4, Luke states what he wanted to do when he pulled together the Bible, pulled together his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That's why Luke wrote his gospel and why he wrote it the way he did. He wanted to produce an orderly account not too sure what that says of Luke's view of the other Gospels. But Luke, and, and I, I really love Luke because Luke was Greek, whereas Matthew, Mark and John were Jewish. So Luke writes with a different framework. He writes with time being in a straight line, whereas Jewish thought was much more time was circular and cause and effect. So the sequence of things, I, I think, is a little more trustworthy in Luke than it is in the other Gospels. And it, it, as he said, it's a little more orderly. Now, there are oral traditions that were there, and I'm sure we all know, as soon as you hear oral tradition, know that it started off as people telling stories and passing it on, we immediately go, oh, Chinese whispers, so we can't trust what it was. The culture of the day and the culture of, that, of oral tradition, even to today, in a lot of what we would consider to be third world countries and, and, and 
primitive cultures sees that passing on of oral tradition as a sacred activity. And so they don't do it willy-nilly. They don't put mayo on it (laughs) to make it sound more exciting. It's passed on. And because they're familiar with the stories, if anybody tried to embellish it, their audience would correct them. Now, if you look at people like the Anglo-Saxon bards that had to recite stories like the the story of Beowulf, Beowulf. they spent 14 years studying how to be a bard. That's a fairly lengthy apprenticeship. And they had to be able to do it all accurately and accuracy was the main thing. But what it meant is that those oral traditions were gathered together and particularly when we're looking at the Old Testament and they pulled it together but they made some editorial adjustments as they went. Now I'll give you an example. It wasn't a case of the Bible was written down and that was it. It was left the way it is. How do I know that? Because the Bible shows me that. Genesis 14 verse 14 says, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household. That's a fairly big workforce in one guy's household, just pointing that out. That's a lot of men. 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay, and, and you sit there and go, well, why, is that, why does that indicate that this was a later editorial ad- adjustment? Well, because Dan was Abram's descendant. And the place that they went to wasn't called Dan until the time of Joshua, because it says in Joshua 19.47, the Danites had difficulty taking possession of their territory, So they went up and attacked Leshem, took it, put it to the sword and occupied it. They settled in Leshem and named it Dan after their forefather. So you've got like multiple generations between when Abram went there and when it was called Dan. So there was an adjustment there. Why? Because they wanted the people to actually know where they were talking about. Call it Leshem and it's like, well, yeah, we don't know where that is. So for the first three or four hundred years, um, the church had the Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic and in Greek and they had the New Testament in Greek and the formation of the New Testament took place over a period of time. The church at large gradually came to agreement about what constituted the scriptures. Senior church leaders regularly met together to thrash out, sometimes literally, There are records of them coming to blows as they debated stuff. Um, Won't go into the sort of things that they had. But these gatherings were usually triggered by someone or a particular group doing or preaching something that made the other churches go, what? What are you talking about? That's not right. And so the church leaders would all come together and go, okay, we need to formulate a position on this. A uh, really good example is Marcion. Marcion's gone, pfft, 
And he was preaching this and he produced his own Bible, which was like really small. It was like the Gospel of Luke, an edited version of the Gospel of Luke, his own, his own Gospel version that he'd written himself. Um, some of Paul's letters, and that was about it, because the rest of it was a little bit too Jewish. Um, and so the rest of the church has gone, you're missing the point. Um, no. I, I, it's interesting when you get on the internet, because this is where the internet is really useful but really dangerous at the same time. You get on there and you go, Marcion, and it'll come up with things like, Marcion, the Bible you have to read. It's like, no, no, that's the Bible I don't want to read because he was a heretic. He missed the point. He lived from around 85 to 160 AD. So, no, he was born when the Apostle John was still alive. Uh, He was excommunicated in 144. Um, Yeah, he couldn't, couldn't reconcile the... God of judgment in the Old Testament and the Jesus of love in the New Testament. So clearly the God of the Old Testament was Satan and that was his position. It was like, well, that's just wrong. Um, Another group uh, that proved to be a catalyst for the church formulating the books was uh, a group called the Montanists. Um, They started in about 156 AD um, by a guy who was a recent convert getting up and starting to prophesy. And he prophesied things like when Jesus was going to come back and where he was going to come back and all that sort of stuff. And it was like, yeah. Um, he, the modernists were distinctive for four main reasons. They really, really emphasised prophecy and put prophecy, the prophecies that they gave at the same level of scripture... So it was like, I know that's what we're prophesying is just as valid. Uh, they were 100% convinced that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. Um, as a result of number two, they were very, very focused on evangelism. Um, sound like any groups these days that you might know? They were, anyway. Um, and, and probably the worst thing that they did, which really made the rest of the church look at them suspiciously, is they allowed women to lead. Now, all of those things had an impact on the church. Their lasting legacy was not the good that they did or the fact that they had Tertullian, who was one of the brightest guys of the early church, and personally, one of my, one of my all-time heroes. Uh, very, very clear and logical thinker, but he decided to join that group. And historians now look at it and go, that makes no sense at all. We can't work that out. But he obviously saw something that they had that he wanted. Um, as a result of falling for that old... No, prophesying the date and place of Jesus' return, they threw the whole gift of prophecy into disrepute. And with it, a lot of the other spiritual gifts. And so the emphasis became much more around structure, around process, and around the ability, you know, eloquence rather than 
God. Um, they set the role of women in the church back 2,000 years. You know, it's probably taken 2,000 years and still a work in progress for women to have their rightful place in leadership. Um, yeah, and the good that came out of it was it forced the church to go, we need, we need to define what's acceptable as scripture and what's not. So they did that. Um, another, another old-time guy, Oregon of Alexandria, so an Egyptian gentleman, um, one of the great, again, great thinker of the early church, he distinguished three classes of writings basing his judgment on majority usage in the places that he'd visited. So he'd basically visited a lot of churches and he's gone, okay, there's three categories. One, clearly in. Two, a bit questionable. Three, clearly out because it's rubbish. Now, the interesting thing is, amongst the clearly in that he identified was the book of Revelation. So he's gone, no, that's clearly in. The, the four Gospels, clearly in. 13 of Paul's letters, clearly in. Book of Acts, clearly in. The di disputed stuff, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Hebrews, James, Jude, they eventually became more accepted in the church. The stuff that was clearly out, which he labelled spurious, which is a lovely word, uh, Gospel of the Egyptians, the Gospel of Thomas, a whole bunch of other stuff. That, and it, This is where I get, I get really, really frustrated, is the secular world seems to be more willing to accept the Gospel of Thomas, even though the church has rejected it for almost 2,000 years, than they do any of the rest of the Bible. It's like, a, oh no, that bit's accurate, all the rest of it's questionable, and it's like, well, no... That bit's questionable, and the rest of it is much more accurate. So, but no, he, he also identified some other books, which he goes, yeah, they're good, but they're not divinely inspired. Um, uh, a, a document called the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas, both books that are interesting and instructive, but not inspired by God. We have um, largely complete manuscripts called unseals. Again, here you go. A word you can put down and go, I, I learned a new word today. The word is unseal. The four great unseals. Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrus, and Codex Ephraimerius. The one at the bottom. Seriously hard to get your mouth around. These were documents, and all of these have been found after the King James Version was written. These were all from early to mid-300s. Really, really old, complete Bibles, or largely complete Bibles. Between all four of them, we've got the whole Bible covered in documents from the 300s. So it gives, again, gives us confidence that what we've got is what we're meant to have. Um, the other significant discovery, so Codex Sinaiticus, they founded a monastery 
at the foot of Mount Sinai. Codex Vaticanus, funnily enough, was found in the Vatican. It had been there, just in in their library, never looked at. The Dead Sea Scrolls. that's That's a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, which is almost word for word what we have now in the book of Isaiah. Like I think there's six words different, none of which impacts the meaning. And you sit there and go, we can be confident that what we've got is what was written. But again, you know, 1947 that was discovered. So not part of what the uh, King James was used, not was what was used to make the King James translation. I touched last week very briefly on a gentleman by the name of John Wycliffe. Two, 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 two men I mentioned, John Wycliffe and William Tyndall. Wycliffe inspired a movement called the Lollards, which is an old Dutch word meaning mumbler, <laughs> because they used to go around mumbling to themselves. I have a suspicion, have no proof, I have a suspicion that what they were doing was just quietly walking around praying in tongues to themselves. And nobody would have, no, anybody that heard them would have gone, weirdos. And that's largely how they were viewed. Uh, Incredibly harshly persecuted. The Lollard Rebellion. um, Yeah, look it up. Um, He translated the Bible into English. Uh, After he died, he was... He had some heavy-hitting political support while he was alive. Once he died and his supporters died, the church goes, right, now he's fair game. So they dug him up, they burnt him at the stake and then threw his ashes in the, uh, in the River Swift. Because that's what you do to someone who's a heretic. It's like, wow, that's just, that's just mean. Um, but he started something that built momentum for the next 150 years until the English Reformation under Henry VIII. Um, Wycliffe's crime was that he translated Jerome's Latin text into English. (laughs) Terrible thing to do. So that non-clerical people could read it and understand what it said without having to have somebody explain it to them because it's written in Latin. They didn't speak Latin. Another English translation, William Tyndall. He did it because of when he did it. He did it in the 1500s. Wycliffe was in the 1300s. William William Tyndall accessed Greek and Hebrew texts and translated from that rather than from the Latin text. So little more accurately, something like 70% of the King James Bible is actually Tyndall's translation. Um, he was strangled, burnt at the stake for his troubles. No, we can read the English. We can read the Bible in English today because of the efforts of these two men. And yet, you talk to a lot of people and they have no idea who they are. So, why were people like Wycliffe and Tyndall willing to die to allow others to read the scriptures in English? 
What motivated them to put their lives at risk just so the Bible was in their language of the people? I'll give you a couple of quotes might help you understand their motivation. These are three quotes from, from Wycliffe. Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own tongue. So did Christ's apostles. It's fairly logical. The laity ought to understand the faith. And since the doctrines of our faith are in the scriptures, believers should have the scriptures in a language familiar to the people. And to this end, the Holy Ghost endued them with knowledge of all tongues. In other words, the Holy Ghost has given people the ability to translate into their own language. So let's take advantage of that so we can understand what the scriptures say. And the third quote there, it is certain that the truth of Christian faith becomes more evidence the more the faith itself is known. Therefore, the doctrine should not only be in Latin, but also in the common tongue. And as the faith of the church is contained in the scriptures, the more these are known in the true sense, the better. Very, I mean, he's not doing, you, you see quotes like that and you go, he's not trying to be a radical. He's just trying to get people living their life according to the Bible. Tyndall, on the other hand, was a little uh, less subtle. Uh, his, probably his most famous quote was in a discussion he was having with a, an, an English priest. And he said, if God spare my life er, many years, I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. <laughs> so he, he's gone... Who are the least educated people in our community? They're going to know more scripture than you do as a priest now because they're going to be able to read the Bible in a language they understand. They both recognize that a relationship that a person has with God is founded on scripture. So what do we need to acknowledge? We need to acknowledge that God exerted his influence on what was written down and what was preserved. He didn't dictate the Bible, but he did inspire people through the Holy Spirit that he controlled the context of their writings. There's too much variation in the style and the vocabulary. Luke's Gospel has a much, a native Greek speaker, has a much wider Greek vocabulary than Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel or John's gospels, who are all written by people who spoke Greek, possibly as a third language. Might have been their second language, but it could have even been their third language. So Luke's got a big old vocabulary. He sits there and goes, so Luke's background and heritage shows up in terms of the width of vocabulary that he uses. Um, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. He says, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or, and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the, this world. Still relevant. But now I'm writing to you. So, 1 Corinthians isn't 1 Corinthians. 
This is going to get a bit confusing. 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. Because Paul clearly wrote a letter prior to 1 Corinthians, but it's not in our Bible. And if you look at 2 Corinthians, there's a fairly strong suggestion that he wrote a letter in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians, if you're just looking at the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. But only two of them were deemed to be necessary to be part of the Bible. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Not because the letters were lost or... It's just like, yeah, don't need those ones. These are the ones that really are what's needed so that people can have an accurate faith in, in God. John makes an interesting statement at the end of his gospel. He said, this is the disciple who testifies to these things. So he goes, I'm an eyewitness and who wrote them down. We know that this testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. So John, at the end of his gospel, goes, look, I could have put a whole lot more stuff about what Jesus did. But this is the stuff that we need. No. So there's a whole lot of stuff that Jesus did that was probably amazing. It's just not recorded for us, so we don't know. Because God was controlling what went in. No. The four gospel writers wrote to different audiences. So the stuff they included and the sequence they put it in is different. People get hung up, oh, they're not consistent. Well, if they were consistent, like if you were in a court case and every witness gave identical testimony, what would you decide? They've colluded. They've got together and gone, let's say this. The variation actually gives us greater confidence that what we've got is different accounts. You can see common threads, but anyway. There's a unity between the Bible and the Holy Spirit. I'm really, really passionate about this, is that what we experience and what we feel that the Holy Spirit is telling us and what the Bible says aren't going to disagree. If they do disagree, if we feel that they do disagree, then we have only one option. And that's to reevaluate our understanding of the Bible and reevaluate our interpretation of our experiences or what we believe the Holy Spirit is saying to us and adjust. Because too many people, too many people, and you hear, anyway, too many people when they leave a church go, oh, God said. They play the God card. And as a pastor, when somebody plays the God card, that's it, you're out. That's like playing the Joker in 500. It's like, what am I meant to say? You didn't understand God or God lied to you? No. And so you sit there and you just go, okay, not a lot I can do. What wrestling through that reconciling what we believe God is saying to us and and what we understand of the Bible is how we grow up 
as Christians. That's what leads us to maturity, that wrestling process. We don't become more mature when it's just easy peasy and it's just, oh, we just drift through. You become really complacent when that happens. There's a wrestle. We need to recognise and acknowledge the role that culture plays, not only in the content of the Bible, but in the translation of the Bible and especially in our understanding of the Bible. The Bible was inspired by God. His breath permeates every part of it. I hope that's clear in your heads. But the events presented, the attitudes displayed, the lifestyles lived, all, respect, all reflect a culture far removed from our own. If we stuck with the culture demonstrated in the Bible, many of us would own slaves. The rest of us would be slaves. <laughs> That'd be it. So why don't we have slavery? It's in the Bible. Nowhere in the New Testament is slavery condemned. In fact, the opposite. So does the Bible support slavery? Why did, why did a truly devout Christian man like William Wilberforce agitate for so long to have slavery made illegal? Because he recognised that it wasn't about the slavery, that the key issue was that every man is made in the image of God. And that if every man is made in the image of God, then it's not appropriate for a man to own another man as a piece of property. And we don't get that unless you look beyond just... Unless you, unless you don't appreciate the cultural differences that are being dealt with. No. You've got to understand the principles of Scripture... No. The content of the Bible is culturally framed, culturally influenced. How many of you? No, you read no more no more, more obvious than in the parables that Jesus told. No, things like no, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I don't know about you, but I have never been from Jerusalem to Jericho. But it's a parable that's meant to resonate with us for some reason. <laughs> no? no? A man owned a hundred sheep. Nope. Anybody here owned a hundred sheep? Nope. <laughs> so we're meant to relate to that. It's, it's culturally, it's, it's, he's talking to the people of then. No, the letters that make up the bulk of the New Testament were written to churches going through particular issues at a particular place at a particular time. So not necessarily universal statements of this is what you should do. There's a cultural aspect to it. No, the translations of the Bible. Every translation of the Bible is culturally influenced. Now, the King James version of the Bible was produced because King James wanted to find some middle ground between various factions in the Church of England at the time. 
and also the Church of, you know, align more the Church of Scotland as well. Um, so it's, it's like, come on. <laughs> no. So he produced that. The latest version of the NIV uses lots and lots of gender-neutral language, not because it's more textually accurate or more closely aligned to the original documents, but because they want to make it more readable and more accessible to the people who are reading it now. So let's remove a lot of the gender-specific language in it so that it's less like hard for women to go, I'm going to listen to this. Now, our understanding of the Bible, we all read the Bible, and if the communion stuff can be handed out while I'm talking as, as well. We all read the Bible with ourselves in mind. Either that or we read it with people we think should change in mind. We take verses like, and this is going to upset some people, verses like Jeremiah 29, 11 and 12. Another one that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Now, everybody that I've spoken to goes, yes, I take that. That is my verse. It's about me. I'm sorry, it's not. The every use of the word you in that verse is plural. Y'all or use. It's collective. It's I know the plans I have for you as a group. Plans to prosper you as a group. So if you and a group if you as a group Come and humble yourself and pray, then I will hear you. It's collective, but we don't read it that way because that's not the cultural mindset that we have. Our cultural mindset is me, 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 me. Now, what, I can't remember which movie it is where you've got a bunch of seagulls going, mine, 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 mine. It's what we, that's what we're like. give you an example one example the Lord's Prayer we're all familiar with it and so many people when they look at the Lord's Prayer start with Father the first word of the Lord's Prayer is not Father first word of the Lord's Prayer is Our O-U-R not H-O-U-R. Our Father. Collective. No, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. But we make it all about us. We have a very selfish Western mindset and our Understanding of the Bible is filtered through that. No. The Bible was written to a much more collectivist audience than us. The Bible also has authority. 
And that means that on one hand, God purposes to direct the belief and behaviour of his people through scripture. And on the other hand, that all our ideas about God should be measured, tested and where necessary corrected by reference to scripture. So the authority of the Bible is... No, it should direct our behaviour. But it also means that we should adjust our thinking as a result of it. We've got to treat it with intellectual honesty. No. 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16 says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with you in the wisdom that God gave him. Ah, there we go. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do with the other scriptures, to their own destruction. So this making the Bible all about what you want is not a new problem. It has been one that has been there for the whole of the Christian age. When we understand accurately what the Bible is saying, we can trust it and move forward following it with confidence. When we make it say what we want to say, we'll ultimately get disappointed because we will think it has failed us. So as we take communion today, I want to read some stuff from 1 Corinthians where Paul writes about communion, even though he wasn't there for the Last Supper. He clearly had a good understanding of what went on. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, a biscuit, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of singing sinning against the body and blood of the lord a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup today as we take communion i want us to examine ourselves not your family not your spouse not that person that rubs you up the wrong way, but yourself. Are we guilty of trying to get the Bible to suit our agenda? To make it say what we want it to say so that we can go, yes, I've got God's backing in what I'm doing. Or are we, are we being honest about where the Bible is challenging us and going, I need to change here, but I can't do it by myself. I can only do it with God's help with the help of those that are part of the community that he has put me within. See, we're not designed. We're not designed to walk alone through our Christian walk. We're designed to do it as part of a community. We're designed to do it as part of a congregation of people who are all trying to grow in their faith and walk with God.
Examine yourself. In your life groups this week, have a think about how have you manipulated Scripture to your own ends? How so and why? And how are you going to make sure you avoid falling into that trap? How can we think of it more collectively rather than individualistically? Discuss that in your life group.